This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. So tonight we have a guest joining us. It's Dr. Christina Vischer, and you will be speaking at McWayne Center for their science. I think I said this wrong earlier. Science on screen. Science on screen. There yeah. you go. There you it's go. next Thursday at 6.30. Uh, the 21st at 6.30, and you are with the UAB Department of Neurobiology, That's correct? right. Awesome. That's right. Good stuff. Well, glad to have you here. Let's go ahead and set up what sure, we're going to be talking sure. about So what's the movie going to be, Dr. Fisher? It's going to be The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes. What an interesting film that is. It's a great film, and it's all about neuroscience. Yeah. So, As all great things are. There you go. And you are a neuroscientist. Your PhD is in neuroscience, right? That's right. And you're... Mm-hmm. Specialty is my specialty is I do functional neuroimaging, which means we use humans as our model organism, and we're looking at human brains. I'm really interested in how the adult human brain or the older adult human brain changes with experience. What kinds of things can we learn? How do we teach old dogs new tricks? And how does the brain change when we do that? What are the options for changes in the brain in older adults? And you can actually see that happening through the imaging, which is it's kind of fascinating that we can do that now. I mean, this is not something we've always been able to do. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, what, last 10, 20 years? MRI this has been coming along? Functional, functional MRI um, started around 1994, so we're 92, depending on yeah. how you count it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not and I'm, a, I'm assuming that as a control, uh, 50 years ago, someone stuck a child in a dark room and has allowed that person just to age with no experience so that we can see how their brain differs, You're right? exactly right. Okay, yes. well, that's just smart science. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. So you're actually seeing changes in the brain. We do. We see some changes in the brain. We, we look at several different aspects of, of brain structure and function. And so we look at... When we look at structure in humans, we usually are looking at cortical thickness, which is the amount of gray matter in different parts of the brain. And different parts of the brain are responsible for different things. For example, like when I'm looking at you, right, I'm using my central vision to look at you, but I can still see you in the corner of my mm-hmm. eye, right? But those are different kinds of information that are coming in. They're processed in different parts of the brain. And we can look at those two different places. We can, for example, train you to detect things that are happening in the corner of your eye more easily. Hmm. And then we can look pre and post that training at how that changes specifically the part of your brain that is involved in processing that peripheral vision. And so that's the the flavor of what we're doing with these cortical thicknesses uh, measures. We also look at activity somewhat. I'm most interested in how different parts of the brain are, are talking to each other and how that chatter, so the brain is always active. Your brain is always chattering at two different parts of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. So neurons fire and they send information to other neurons in other parts of the brain. And, they, um, and they're doing that all the time. But those patterns can change over time. They can change depending on whether you're attending to what's going on outside or what's going on right in front of you. And Or sleeping through class. Or sleeping through class. Mm-hmm. That is a huge change in brain... <laughs> activity patterns exactly and so we can look at those patterns and we can look at how those patterns change with um change with what your attentional state is and also how that shift changes with experience Hmm. so how is it that my wife can without a a functional mri yeah be talking to me and i'm looking at her in the eyes 
And she can tell the difference when I'm looking at her in the eyes, whether I'm actually listening or if my ADD has drifted off somewhere else. <laughs> and I'm still gazing straight ahead. And she's like, you're not listening anymore. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> but how'd you know? <laughs> that is an awesome question. And so I think, yeah. It's fascinating to me what our brains can do, and including things like that, where she can literally pick up a very subtle difference in the gaze yeah. And, yeah. and has learned over time. She's been taught. She didn't know this immediately, but after repeating herself, she's like, I need to start recognizing this difference because um, I'm tired of repeating myself. So, so she catches it early. But she's learned that. Mm-hmm. She and has learned something different about the way I look. Just does subtly. she know what it is? Have you asked her? I don't know. It has I to bet be, she doesn't. She has to be looking a little bit beyond, right? This like, like still looking, how you're focused? Yeah, like, looking so at you, but looking a little bit beyond you is what I would Yes, yeah, that, that might I can, be it. I can almost well, picture that. If statement. she's listening, maybe she'll text in and let me know. If she can't say exactly what it is, there's a there's a phenomenon called statistical learning, which we all do all the time. Statistical, statistical learning. Statistical learning. And it's... It's, have it's you, not a prop have you ever stat class. Of, no. You ever heard of chicken sexing? There oh. is, whoa, 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 that is a whoa, whoa, whoa. job. <laughs> this is a family show. Dr. Fisher. Sorry. Family? Sorry. Just kidding. No. Okay. Um, so that this is a job that people have in, you know farms and you need to choose which ones are the male male chickens and the female chickens right after they've hatched hmm. and you can you tell the difference between the the two Reed, genders and the did, two sexes of chickens? I chick? didn't know there were two sexes of chickens. <laughs> exactly. I haven't read about this, but I, I can't remember the, the yeah, way. Yeah. Well, so there, there are very subtle differences between the two. So you train someone over you know, a very, very long time to tell the difference between the two. You ask them, what's the difference between the two? They cannot tell you it's, what it is, but they're, they're like 99% accurate just dividing that's the, like, the two. Now, you know, this... instinct almost kind of... Going back to kind of people making judgments based on their quote unquote gut, they they have a they know what they should choose. They can't tell you why yeah. they're going with their quote unquote gut. Is that yeah? It's non conscious. It's yeah. absolutely you know, non conscious. There's um, Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink, of course, talks about the tennis coach who can tell like oh that that tennis player is about to double fault, and he he doesn't know how he knows that, mm-hmm. but he just knows it. This is the Tony Romo thing, right? I don't know what's that. We heard about this. Oh so yeah, Tony Romo who was a quarterback in the NFL now as a play by play guy. And he calls the plays, like, here's what's going to happen at an alarmingly high rate, like 78% or something. NPR, I heard an NPR story about it. And they were like, yeah, here's exactly how many plays he calls. And it was was shocking. So this all goes back to chicken sexing. It does. It does. A lot Mm. of studies have been done in chicken sexing about statistical learning. And these are all examples of statistical (laughs) learning. Your brain's amazing at it. Is that a major now? It should, it's not, should, yeah, should be. Should be. My parents will pay to get me into that one. All right. <laughs> hey, let's take a quick break. Tonight, we're talking about the brain and all these crazy things that our brains can do and beyond. And beyond. The brain and, and beyond. beyond. So, yeah. Dr. Christina Fasher is here with us, by the way. She's from the UAB Department of Neurobiology. Yep, yep. So, and I like to learn a little bit about people since I'm a psychiatrist. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from and, and how did you get into neuroscience? Let's learn yeah. a little bit about, about Dr. Fisher. So I'm from Northport, Alabama, which mm. is right outside Tuscaloosa. Okay. Um, that's where I grew up. And um, how did I get into neuroscience? It's, it's kind of a nerdy story. So I was, um, I was a physics major in college because I wanted to understand the world, right? Like, where was this? Um, I went to a small liberal arts school. Honestly, I went as, as different as you can possibly be from the University of Alabama because I grew up in that sort sure, of... Sure, sure. No. In the yeah. shadow of... The in the shadow of, of UA. Bryant-Denny study. Um, which I love, but yeah. enough is enough. Yeah. 
Yeah. And how was the football team where you went to college? Very, with very bad. <coughs> very bad. Yeah, very bad football yeah. team. Yes. Where did exactly. you go to college? Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. It's okay. a small liberal arts school. It's great. It's, cool. it's a yeah. great school. Cool. All right. no, physics major. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was a physics major, and I was a junior, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what to do next, right? And um, we were talking about. Um, well, number one, I was getting kind of sad about physics because the top quirk had just come out and there were two, there was a paper that was an amazing paper about like how this, you know, how we found the top quirk and there were 200 authors on it. And we had one of those authors come and talk to us and he was like, I wrote 20 lines of code on a computer and that's what I did. And that was like, that's the only thing that he did in the entire, you know, research enterprise. It wasn't, it didn't seem exciting. Not what you were dreaming about. It wasn't what I was dreaming about. Hmm. So I was thinking about it and... And then I took, this is the part that sounds kind of, I don't know. Anyway, um, I took quantum mechanics. And as everyone says, it doesn't make sense. It does not make hmm. sense. Like, there's nothing in that that makes sense. Why can something be a particle in a wave? It's a good question. It doesn't question. make sense. Right. I'm like, going to say in, like, layman terms, put that into a 30-second, like, what exactly is that? I, I of course, know what it is. <laughs> so quantum mechanics is the study of... Really, really, really tiny particles, smaller than atoms, smaller than quarks, tiny, tiny, tiny. And when you talk about, I mean, we, we mm-hmm. as you probably heard people talk about light can be a particle or a wave. We know that because of quantum mechanics. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Especially the leaping part and the little guy that meets you yeah, when you get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's super yeah. confusing. Is so like, exactly. that also like things connecting like... Yeah, string theory, there's like, quantum entanglement, things like, like really infinitely far away from each other that so should be connected. connected. It just, it doesn't make sense for our own, like, brains. Our brains don't understand that, right? So I started to think about that kind of thing and realized that if we really wanted to understand the world, we had to understand the thing through which we filter the world, and that's the brain. brain. There you go. So I started taking classes in that. Nice. Hmm. Now, you also shared something before the show that, and we're talking about memory. Um, Tell us about your memory. It's very poor. Now, what do you mean by very poor? Because that's an like interesting comment. Tomorrow, when I meet some, when I meet someone today, I'm unlikely to remember their names tomorrow. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm the exact same way. Right, right. Oh, yeah. yeah, but I don't. So the qualification that I have, because I'm the same way, but it, saying you have a very poor memory, it needs to be qualified, right? Because obviously, look what you've done in life. Um, your your brain works well. So when you say you don't have a good memory, you mean you don't recall data? I think that I have a poor episodic memory. Episodic memory is memory for specific times, specific points in times, exactly what happened in those points in times. And I'm not great with that. Oh, just real quick question, because, you know, we've talked, I think, on this show and in these segments about memory and the nature of memory. I... I wonder if you've thought about whether or not, uh, given your expertise in the area of like the way the brain works and all that, do you think you know enough about the fallibility of memory that maybe then you're just more aware of the ways in which memory is? Like, I wonder if your memory might be actually as good as most people's. It's just you're acutely aware of the ways that memory fails in general. That's a tough one. I think I think there are a lot of people that study the brain who say that they have a poor memory, and yeah. maybe that's part of it. But also, maybe we go into it because we're really interested because yeah. we're so bad. Maybe and so. You, that question was also asked by someone who has a phenomenal memory. 
Who are, you, are you pointing at me? I'm pointing at you. That's funny yeah. because when she said, I have a bad memory because I can't remember people's names, I was like, well, that's me also. <laughs> that's but funny. I don't know, Will. I what do you like think? I think Reed has a. I think of him memory. as like encyclopedic. I mean, yeah. When he reads something, you retain it. It's amazing. Maybe to me. sometimes with things that I read or hear in a podcast or something like that. You know? But yeah. also, yeah, I think it's, the it's amazing. You yeah. are usually dealing with us at the same time where he's the kind of person. Mm that, yeah, for the most part, can read and remembers those things. I'm a person that has trouble reading and has trouble remembering what I read when I read it. So I'm, 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 I'm with you. And I, I, mm-hmm. I call myself, I tell patients, I'm an experiential learner. I mean, yeah. so, you know, they're asking, like, what book should I read on that? And I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, I, I've got some books I can suggest, but I probably haven't read them. <laughs> so I'm giving no yeah. credence. I'm sorry, I didn't mean yeah, to interrupt. No, I'm no. giving no credence at all. But it's interesting that this has come up because today on Facebook I saw multiple articles. Again, zero credence because I don't know the sources. But here they are. Uh, forgetfulness is a sign of intelligence. Research shows being forgetful is a sign that you are intelligent. If you are forgetful, you're intelligent. Those are the three. And I saw like multiple people posting these. Uh, some I will say some of the people I saw posting them are people that post nonsense all the time. But it's interesting that that was like one of the popular articles going around Facebook today. Yeah, there. I mean, this I don't I don't know that particular study, but I'm sure there's this whole literature of of studies in cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience where it's really good for you. So especially in older adults, older adults on average, not everyone, but on average, have a hard time filtering out irrelevant, distracting information, mm. right? So yeah. if you're, if you say only remember the blue objects, they'll remember the blue objects, but also the red and the orange and the yellow objects, right? So that is not good for their subsequent memory and, and a lot of other cognitive tasks. So yeah. I wonder if it's in that vein. Interesting. Yeah. It also could be put out by the Russians. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> So when it comes to this different types of memory, I, I, what about, I suspect you have the kind of memory that remembers processes. I remember concepts. Concepts. And like, yeah, yes. yeah I'm, I'm okay at that. But yeah, not, some people yeah. more, I think, lean more towards that than, than historical facts, data, yeah. you know, episode, I mean, uh, events and stuff. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. So, okay. So that's how you got into neuroscience and study memory, although you don't feel like you have a good memory. That's right. But that's right. You have a great brain. I like to tell people all the time, you know, know your brain and you clearly have a great brain. Well, see. So, all right. So let's go back to this um, movie. Yes. So, it's called The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah. I bet a lot of the listeners have seen it before, but yeah. it's worth yep. watching Pretty again. Proper. Yep. I watched it for the nth time again, very recently um, in preparation for next week. It's good, but yeah. it, it's different when you see it, see it later in life. But the, the general gist of the movie if you haven't seen it, is that um, in some future but not too far future time, technicians can erase specific memories from your brain and just get rid of those specific memories and not the rest of them. And so people, for example, who have recently undergone heartbreak can erase the memory of the person who broke their heart. Straight out of Black Mirror. I was about to say, mm-hmm. it basically is Black Mirror. Straight out of Black was. Mirror. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is fantastic. You haven't seen Black Mirror? I have not. Oh, oh gosh. it's so good. I no. think you've mentioned it yeah. more than once. Netflix, it it's one of my favorite things. Yeah. And so this was, it's been a while since I've seen the film, but it, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, um, yeah. 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, so I should say Black Mirror is straight out of this. That's exactly yeah, right. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. 
So it yeah. is a very fascinating because it raises, you know, I've worked with the philosophy club uh, at Hoover High School. And these are the kinds of questions that we talk about. Like, wait, is this is this a, something you would be interested in? What would be the pros and the cons of this kind of, you know, selective kind of memory if you could go in and, um, you know, so it raises all kinds of interesting ethical questions, I think, as well. And Absolutely. Know, mm-hmm. And I think I think one of the I don't think I'm giving away anything about the movie when I say that one of the main points of the movie is that if you remove the negative memories, you also remove a lot of good right. from, you know, who you are. You remove a lot about your experiences that have made you the person you are. Which See, is I was going to say, like... Yeah, you lose part of yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. Almost like anything you could say, like, hey, what's the, some of the bad things that have happened to you in your life? Especially like a bad relationship or breakup or whatever. Like, I don't take any of that back. I, it taught me to be the way that I am, I guess, or, you know, like now it's the way I handle things based on those experiences. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you, you know. really, I mean, I would think neuroscientifically, I mean, thinking about taking about taking out isolated memories, I mean, memories, and you, you'll tell me if I'm not thinking correctly on this, they go to so many different places in the brain and different, mm-hmm. different things. They're associated with many different things, mm-hmm. sights, sounds, smells that it, it's almost impossible to take away a memory because it becomes part of the brain in so many different areas. Right, right. And you know, I mean, we don't entirely understand everything that goes into making a an, a memory, or we call it sometimes an engram, the like physical manifestation of an, a memory. We don't totally understand what that is, but definitely, it has lots of parts. Right, it has the same neuron can be active when remembering your grandmother and remembering that chair. And remembering, you know, hmm. I don't know, regions field, right? Yeah. They they they're they're multiplexed in a really complicated way, but multiplexed. Yeah. Yeah. It is a fascinating thing to think about, you know, when you just think like, oh, well, there's just like some biological matter in your skull. And also it is capable of, to the best of our knowledge, you know, having these encoded memories that just seem very real when you think about the way those kinds of things can reappear in dreams and seem so vivid. And right. it's just amazing to think that the mush in your head does that. Right. Yeah. And but it's I mean, mushy. We held one one time. It's mushy. <laughs> Did you? But, yeah. Yeah, when the body exhibit came through yeah. at McWayne Center. You're going to have an opportunity to do it again on um, the 23rd through the 28th at McWayne Center for What's Brain that? Awareness Week. So hot dog. We're going to be bringing some brains in. We're yeah. going to be doing some demonstrations about how not just your memory, but your perception is totally messed up by everything yeah. in your head. It was shocking how heavy the brain was. Mm-hmm. That was the one thing I remember about like, man, this is yeah. small, or mm-hmm. smaller than you think. And mm-hmm. it was heavy. So there's dense. that. Dense. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. Great stuff. We're talking to Mark, Dr. Mark Westfall and also Dr. Christina Fasher. Basher. Visher. Visher. See, Will's like, bad at remembering names. See? <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. So I'm so smart. That's what it says here on Facebook. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> We're talking about the brain, of course. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with more. Uh, Dr. Christina Fisher is here with us, and she'll be speaking next Thursday, the 21st, at McWayne Science Center. We're talking about the brain. We are yeah. talking about the brain. Lots some, of super interesting things. A lot of interesting things. Some interesting questions during the break. Uh, we had one question about um, kind of like uh, anniversary memory. Mm-hmm. Lo- loss of a loved one, mm-hmm. and then a year or two later, you know, e- or every year it comes by, they have a, m- a memory of that, and it's very difficult emotionally for them. I see that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the listener actually mentioned that the loved one passed away like very close to the anniversary date mm-hmm. of their long term mm-hmm. spouse. Yeah. And so, you know, thoughts on that? So I think they're they're basically saying that the 
that they're remembering the very traumatic event and having that memory of the very traumatic event is in itself traumatic, right? Right. So I think that's... For some people, even more than others, right? Right, right. And I think that's that's one of the things that people think is going on with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's what I was going to ask. You know, we said about erasing memories and is that good or bad? Generally, I'd say that's a bad thing. But of course, I'm someone who doesn't have PTSD and has never dealt with that. And Mm -hmm. it's a very serious thing that a lot of times leads to suicide. Mm -hmm. And so maybe in that situation, that would be a good thing if you could go in and isolate that memory and remove it from the brain. Right. If you could do a little uh, spotless mind. Spotless mind on those those memories. Yeah. Yeah, And they're kind of working on that actually, right? I mean, there's some research looking at trying to use different chemicals while performing psychotherapy for people with PTSD. That's right. Yeah. To help change their, their change. experience of having the rememory. Exactly. It's this it's this rememory problem that, yeah. that they're that they're influencing here. They're not gonna I don't think in these experiments, they're not gonna be able to get rid of the memory itself, but they can they can reduce the um, emotional effect of the memory itself. So mm. the the re-experiencing of that memory each time you do it, you're you're basically you're you're opening up that memory cabinet and you're messing with it a little bit and you're putting it back and that putting in in your in your, in your we call it reconsolidating the memory. So mm. you recall the memory and then you have to reconsolidate it. If you, if during that recall it's very traumatic and you have um, a high amount of anxiety or negative emotions around that. Um, that could be really problematic. And we think that's part of what's going on in people with PTSD. But if you can decrease, as you reconsolidate the memory, each time decrease the amount of emotion associated with it, you physically change the memory itself. You are changing the memory itself by changing the way you react to it when you remember mm, yeah. it. The, the analogy I give patients is um, it's like we store our memories in a closet. And when, we're, when we have trauma, um, we don't we don't have the ability to do it in an organized manner mm-hmm. and we sometimes tend to try to shut the door and like think of a closet that's just overflowing with items that are mm-hmm. unorganized mm-hmm. and every time you come close to that closet you open it up to remember something and it just all falls out all the emotions just fall mm-hmm. out and so the psychotherapy can help you open the closet and reorganize how you feel about the memories and what you do with the memories so you can close the closet door neatly shut open it back up, access a memory, close it. It's not, that's just kind of the image I have. And it really, yeah. patients seem to kind of get that, that. Okay, yeah, because it does feel like things are just falling all over the floor every time I even come close to that memory. Yeah. You know, even something that resembles it that's not even, I'm not even this, wanting to think about it. So Dr. Westfall has told me that I have a problem with this, and I want to get your opinion on it. <laughs> um, I brought this up yesterday in the morning show. I forget how it came up, but it was something about like, what stresses you out, a listener wrote in. And nothing is really kind of the answer. Like, I just don't get stressed out about stuff. If there's something in my life that is stressful, I'm able to compartmentalize that thing mm-hmm. and not think about it. And it doesn't seem to come back and haunt me. Like, it's honestly, I just don't let things. And then I'll get really productive one day and I'll take care of those things mm-hmm. that I've mm-hmm. suppressed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Is is that super unhealthy? Because I, I know I'm, I'm sure that it is. But it hasn't seemed to bite me yet. Like, I seem to be having a decent time with it. I, to, I'm not in the position to say whether it's healthy or not. But it does seem very, you know, it, what you're able to do is you're able to, to, to 
to segregate those memories from other memories and to ignore them, right? You totally ignore them. Right. And some people are better at ignoring like perceptual stimuli, mm-hmm. actual stimuli in the environment than others. That's something that is 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 well documented that some people can do better than others and also other and some people are better at ignoring I forget the word that gets used in in the literature for it but essentially ignoring the um, the inputs from the other parts of your brain that want in right so mm-hmm. some people are good at suppressing that and some people are less good at suppressing yeah, that you were I, good at that I know where it came up uh, we were talking about sleep and the question of the day yesterday was what do you do to help yourself fall asleep and people were talking about stress and how they'll stay up all night not sleep a minute because of things that stress them out and my mind was just like, what? Because it's so easy for me to just like, I'll think about a fun thing. That's great. Well, you have good, it. we would call it's, that cognitive control. That's a form of cognitive an, control, and yeah. you are good at that. My brain's not going to just like explode out of one side at some right. point with all those stressful things. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> it might. Maybe. But now in psychiatry, we would talk about two different terms, suppression and repression mm-hmm. of events and, and emotions. Suppression is when you consciously choose to put it over here and repression is when you actually don't remember it and it's considered to be from a in terms of psychological health and what may come back to to bite you so to speak suppression is felt to be more psychologically healthy repression is something that can get you in trouble sometimes because you you aren't really remembering it you may not be learning from it and you may come across it again and it may bite you again so you know part of what our brain does is it it remembers things so that we don't put ourselves in harm's way again and it's one of the things that it's it's supposed to do for us and to get back to the PTSD thing, sometimes people's brains are overactive on doing that and they can't shut the memory down. And every time they have the memory, it's like they're experiencing the event just like it was the first time, which most people don't. I mean, most people think about it. I always use the childbirth analogy. I mean, mm-hmm. if women truly remembered the exact way childbirth felt, they probably wouldn't have another child. But as soon as they have the child, the memory is is modulated and mm-hmm. I'm sure you have a lot of more fancy terms and and it helps them move on in life and and it's not a traumatic event it's a happy event but mm-hmm. in the moment it's like I don't ever this has never happened again I mean trust me my wife looked at me like this is this is not <laughs> happening again of course it did you know so I mean it, it really is something that's very healthy for our brain to do but people with PTSD have trouble with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is that kind of uh, you know along the line of what can be studied that's through the Id- yeah. functional neuroimaging or whatever? Absolutely. So that's been studied in several ways. There's there's several um, studies that are being done right now with patients with PTSD. And you can imagine, these are hard studies to do because you're actually, sure. you know, you, you have to, you're re-traumatizing yeah. them. You have to be very, very careful, obviously. But there's another sort of class of studies that you could do with, with less traumatic experience. So Liz Phelps's lab has done a whole bunch of studies on uh, uh, like this that sort of what for example they'll show um a bunch of colored um shapes like a yellow square and a green triangle etc and then every time there's like let's say a green shape they'll shock the person Mm -hmm. right so the idea is you're inducing fear in the person through um through showing the square and you can are showing the green colored objects right and and you can ask the person and they'll say, oh, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't like the green objects. I know that they're, they're going to be uncomfortable or whatever. But, but what really matters here is that you're getting an emotional response. And you can measure emotional responses through, mm-hmm. um, through how much your palms sweat, basically. So you measure palm sweat, which is 
called mm. skin conductance response, but really it's palm sweat, right? And then you also measure the pupil dilation. And so you can see that people are having an emotional response to like the green squares, but not the red squares, right? Yeah. So what they do is they, they can measure this emotional response over time. They can measure neural activity associated with the emotional response. And then what they can do is they can watch as you extinguish this memory through either showing a bunch of green squares and not having mm-hmm. the response. Okay. So desensitizing, desensitizing them to the stimulus, okay? Right. Or um, do they give them some medication They sometimes? can also give them some medication during the reconsolidation period, which mm-hmm. is when, when you're showing the green square again for the first time and then you... Um, you know, you're remembering that this is a bad stimulus. That's that's reconsolidation. You're putting that memory back in the little closet again. If you if you give certain drugs during that period, you will remove that um, that emotional response that we measure through through palm sweating. Or if you're like Will, you could just do what he would do and just put gloves on, and then you don't have to. <laughs> no, no problem at all. I was thinking we could study Will and his response instead of to objects is put various political figures on the TV screen. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, put responsibilities on the TV screen. <laughs> just a list of like things I'm late on, and then that's all. That's all you get. And have one have someone say like. Did you remember to do this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. so they're studying a, a medication that can essentially suppress the the uh, traumatic emotions, essentially that come up with right. different stimuli, and right. they can see that the brain is able to forget the association with the negative stimuli quicker with right. the medication. Exactly. The bottom line. Exactly. Yeah. And they're and they're forgetting the association, but they're not forgetting that there was a stimulus and that it was associated. So they remember with there was a bad they stimulus. The they bad just don't stimulus. have the physical symptoms the that come emotional with it. response mm-hmm. that's fascinating mm-hmm. hey let's take a very quick break and then we'll come back and finish our discussion with dr mark westfall and dr christina fisher as well um okay anna you have a question from a listener yeah so this is a listener question i've heard it said that eyewitness reports are frequently incorrect on many facts what causes memory to change facts while storing or once it's in the brain hmm. right so that is a hard question that I don't think we can answer entirely, but we can talk about some of the effects that have been studied in psychology and neuroscience labs that replicate that. And one of them is called the DRM model, and it's Dees Rodiger McDermott. doesn't matter who they are, but it's a bunch of um, psychologists, and they did this experiment, right? They told people to remember a list of words, and that list of words had very, very related things like pillow and snore and a bunch of things that had to do with sleep, let's say, but not sleep. The word sleep wasn't there, right? Mm -hmm. So later when they're told to um, say whether a list of words was, was part of the original list, was what they were supposed to remember, if you put sleep in that list, what do you think the people did? They said, yep. yeah, they we would think it was sleep. on there. They thought mm-hmm. it was on there. So they've implanted a memory, basically, into a person. But and every, this happens for everybody, pretty much. Everybody has some degree of this effect, which makes sense, right? Sure. We need to remember gist, right? The world is not filled with things where we have to remember the very, very specifics of everything. We were just talking earlier in the show about how we're not good at remembering names. Those are very specific things that... Yeah, it's a problem that we don't remember names, but not a huge problem. All of us are relatively high functioning. We're eating tomorrow, probably. Like, we're going to be okay. 
But if we couldn't remember the gist of like why we were here and what's going on, you know, in this building, we would have real problems with the rest of our lives. And yeah. so, so kind of like Alzheimer's. That's, kind of like Alzheimer's. That's what I was thinking as soon yeah. as you said yeah. that. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. Alzheimer's. Well, it's interesting. So you can do, you know, you can play little games with all of these things. And, and so people often play this DRM effect game with older adults. And it turns out that older adults have a much higher rate of false memory implantation than younger adults do. Hmm. And the idea is that older adults, well, there are several possible reasons, but one possible reason is that older adults just don't need anything but the gist most of the time, yeah. right? I've so heard, they'll take it all in and... I've heard the same thing said mm-hmm. about... Um, if you do a, a passage and ask older adults or young adults to remember the passage, younger adults remember the details better, mm-hmm. but older adults remember the gist much better. Well, there so you go. They, they get the meaning of it without remembering the details. So. Right. Yeah, I tell you, it's always blown my mind when people can do a sketch, like a sketch artist from a seeing a crime, would usually it's something that happened like within a few seconds, and they yeah. just kind of see somebody and they can put it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like. To be honest, uh, Dr. Fisher, we've been sitting here for over an hour together. And if someone asked me to like describe your face, honestly, it'd be tough to do. But yeah. I think about it with people that are in my life every day, mm-hmm. how it would be tough for me yeah, to, to do a sketch, mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. So I don't, yeah. But there are some people who could do it immediately. Yeah. Right. The other thing that came to my mind when you were talking is that, that our brain really modulates the memory as it's being consolidated, right? Yeah. So we talked about something before, uh, implicit bias. So if you're watching an event unfold, I'm going to ask you a question. Would implicit bias essentially potentially change how you remember an event? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of evidence that that, 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 that that's the case. It can change the way that you remember the event. It's a lot easier, as we talked about before, it's a lot easier to do these kinds of experiments with non-real events, right? Mm -hmm. There's tons and tons and tons of literature, some of it from our lab, that shows that the... um, You can brag on UAB. (laughs) We do it all the time. It's fun. That shows that as you... If you're trying to take in information, right, your... We call it your top-down concept of what that information is or what what you are expecting, basically. What you're expecting really influences what Mm. you will see, right? Yeah. To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio, 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com, or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter, at Lockamy Brothers.